This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome to this latest podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. For new episodes delivered straight to your chosen feed every Thursday, make sure to subscribe. And if you'd like to say hello, you can also leave us a rating and a review. This week, we're honouring the life of a 17th century composer who lived and worked at Kirby Hall in Northamptonshire. George Jeffreys was both a steward and in-house musician for the Hattons, a rich family who became entangled in the civil wars. But now his music and memory have been reborn, thanks to a new album recorded on site at Kirby Hall. You're currently hearing a clip from that, and we'll be hearing more extracts from the album throughout this episode. Hello, I'm Dickon Whitewood. I'm the Curator of Collections and Interiors for English Heritage in our East Region. Hello, I'm uh, Joe Wainwright. I'm a Professor of Music at the University of York uh, and I have academic interests in English and Italian 17th century music, uh, specifically the influence of Italian music on English musicians and that of course is where George Jeffries comes in. And I'm the editor of George Jeffries' Complete Works. Uh, there are going to eventually be three volumes of Musica Botanica and uh, the rest of Jeffrey's works are on the York Early Music Press site. Hello, my name's Jonathan Sells, and I'm the artistic director and singer for the Baroque music collective Solomon's Knot, who made the recording at Kirby Hall. Well, thank you all for coming on. Really interested to talk to you about the life and times of George Jeffries and, of course, his music and what he leaves behind for us. So let's get into the sort of political context of his time and also talk a bit more about his life. How would you summarise the life of George Jeffries and the times in which he lived, Joe? I think the phrase living through troubled times says it all. We must remember that early modern musicians were totally dependent on some form of patronage. And as Jeffries worked for most of his life for a royalist family, the Hatton family, his life was closely intertwined with that of his patron, Sir Christopher Hatton III, and therefore he was affected by the big event of the century, and that, of course, is the English Civil War. Indeed, Jeffreys, the high point of his career came when his patron, Christopher Hatton, became controller of the king's household at the wartime court in Oxford between 1642 and 1646. And it was then that Jeffreys held his one and only professional musical appointment both mm. Anthony Wood and John Hawkins, the uh, historians, report that Jeffreys was organist to the king at Oxford. Jeffreys, however, was never listed as an official member of the Chapel Royal. And after the fall of Oxford, and Hatton did what all sensible royalists did and legged it to Paris, where he stayed until 1656, Jeffreys, in effect, becomes an administrator. He becomes a steward working for Lady Hatton, left back at home at Kirby Hall. And then at the Restoration, no doubt due to his patron's reputation, one of financial incompetence and fecklessness, Hatton didn't gain any major role at court. The most he got was governor of Guernsey, and he made a mess of that and was recalled in disgrace. Jeffreys, the household steward musician, so closely connected with the Hattons, therefore never gained a musical place at court and spent the remainder of his life working for the Hatton family at Kirby Hall or perhaps in London at the Hatton's house in Ely Place, Hoburn. So that's the really interesting thing about Jeffreys is he wasn't a professional musician for most of his career. But, as we'll talk about, uh, he was involved in mu music making throughout his career and has left an enormous legacy, as we'll, well, we can now hear on the recording and we're going to be talking about. Indeed. So basically, George Jeffrey's life and fortune follows that of his sponsor, his... His patron, yes, yes. So his legacy, as you've mentioned, what legacy does he leave behind? What is the written history of George Jeffrey's life and work? 
We have an amazing amount of information about Jeffries, far more than we do most musicians. And this is partly through the survival of the Hatton correspondence in the Northamptonshire archives and the British Library. There are no end of letters between Jeffries and various family members, usually concerned with the administration of the Hatton estate, and very rarely is music mentioned at all. But we can reconstruct Jeffrey's musical activities, both as a composer and a copyist. He copied a lot of music by other composers, as well as his own music. And that all survives in a very large number of music manuscripts, which today are in either Christchurch, Oxford, the Bodleian Library, Oxford, or the British Library. An amazing range of, of music was uh, copied by George Jeffries, starting back in Cambridge in the 1630s when he annotates music in the Caroline Park books in Peterhouse. We have court-connected instrumental music of his from the 1630s and 40s. He then copies an awful lot of Italian music from printed sources in the Hatton Library. Some of that may have been intended for the Roman Catholic chapel of Charles I's queen, Henrietta Maria. And then right through to the end of his life, he was continuing copying the most up-to-date music. And, and then, really fascinating, in, in the last two years of his life, he's even copying trio sonatas by Henry Purcell. Jeffreys died in 1685, and Purcell's trio sonatas date from 1683. So he is copying music right up to the end of his life, keeping up to date with things. And then alongside that, of course, he is composing his own music, starting with, in the early 1630s in Cambridge, we have some stage music he wrote, um, stage songs written for university stage performances. We have his early viol uh, fantasias. There are Italian madrigals that he composed, uh, learning the trade, I think. But his main output is around 100 sacred songs, anthems and motets in both English and Latin. And he composed those really throughout his career. And it's an astonishing output, really, for a, what in effect is a, an amateur musician. Yes, that's really interesting. Um, he's multifaceted in, in his interests, isn't he? He's this copyist and he's this composer as well. If you had to sort of create a visual image for our listeners, how thick would the pile of manuscripts be that George Jeffries either copied or, or wrote himself? Oh, boy. R remembering that uh, many of these musical manuscripts are actually part books, so, so you don't have one single score of the whole set. You will have five different part books. Oh, I, well, if I was to pile them up, let me think. Um, it, well, it's a very good long shelf of, of music survives, including his own personal scorebook and then performing part. We have often two sets of copies of, of his music, um, his own, let's call it store copy, his own personal scorebook, and then number of part books that were obviously used in performance at Kirby Hall or elsewhere. So it really is a, an amazing amount of music surviving. And with all composers at this period, my guess is, in fact, I know for a fact that there are a number of missing manuscripts. Uh, one of his sets of parts was originally of five voice music and only three part books survive. I suspect there's an awful lot of his music uh, has been lost over the last uh, 400 years. Uh, but it, it, amazing survival, really. And is it all stored in the British Library? No, it's divided between the British Library, um, that's where his scorebook are, and his main part books. But lots of his, his, his manuscripts are in the Bodleian Library, went there via the Tenbury Music Collection. Uh, his scorebooks uh, tend to be in the Bodleian Library. And then the music library of his patron, which is a largely printed library collection. So Christopher Hatton's own library of music survives today in Christchurch, Oxford. And George Jeffreys' handwriting appears all over that music. He annotates a lot of the covers of manuscripts and printed music in, in the, the Hatton Music Library. So Christchurch, the Bodleian and the British Library are where the collection is basically divided. One manuscript did somehow work its way over to the Marsh Library in Dublin. We think it was probably by Archbishop Marsh himself who took it from Oxford. But that's really the only one that's, that's gone a, a long way. The rest are Oxford and London. Any other sort of written documents that uh, give an insight into his life? Letters and this sort of thing? It is primarily the, the letters about administrative his administrative duties at Kirby Hall that survive in the Northamptonshire, what used to be called the record office now, the Northamptonshire archive. 
and I've read a lot of those. I say I've read a lot. Uh, I, it's one of my retirement research projects is to spend a lot of time in the Northamptonshire Record Office going through every single letter I can find, hoping that I might find something a bit more interesting than a contract with a builder or a food order or whatever it is at, at Kirby <laughs> Hall. Um, I'm sure buried there, if I had the time to get through them, there might be more musical references. So far, I haven't found much at all, which is a bit annoying. It's interesting, though, that uh, on occasion things slip in. So he he mentions the local um, Presbyterian at his local church, who he 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 he's clearly disapproving of, and so, so little snippets I, of his personal beliefs do come in. Ah. Absolutely, we we find a little bit of family information as well. He 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 wasn't happy with his son-in-law, for example. You, yes, you do just pick up little bits of information that help us with his biography, and uh, and I'm sure that if when I have the time to really get to that archive, that more will turn up. Um, we'll look yes. out for the for the book from you, Joe, eventually. Yeah, be a few years, but yes, that's my plan. Obviously, we're mostly talking about the music today of George Jeffries. For people who aren't into this sort of music, can you describe the type of music that he did pursue during his life? And how is he different from other composers of his time, Joe? Yes, I think George Jeffries' best music is his sacred devotional music, so religious music. This tends to be small-scale sacred songs, anthems and motets, usually for no more than a handful of singers, supported by a basso continuo, that is an accompanying instrument, usually an organ or uh, it could be an organ and a theorbo, a plucked instrument as well. And a lot of that music can be described as Italianate. And I think this is what mark him as, as slightly different to most Anglican church and cathedral composers of the time. Jeffries is writing in the new styles the Italianate concertato style, we musicological characters call it. By that, I mean the new expressive, small-scale works, which combined elements of solo singing with the old, more old-fashioned polyphonic writing. And I think it was George Jeffrey's exposure to Italian music in the Hatton Music Library, particularly music written by Monteverdi's contemporaries, such as Pomponio Nena, Alessandro Grandi, Taquinio Merula, all of whose music Jeffrey's copied. I think that inspired Jeffrey's own compositions and his best music. Obviously, this is pre-phonography, pre-the phonogram, isn't it? Obviously, by a long, long time in advance, significant yes, margin. Yes, yes. So, the only way that you can access and enjoy music is a if you can read it and understand it, and b that you copy it and then I guess you hum it to yourself as you're copying it so that you can sort of enjoy your inspiration that way. That That's how artists would be inspired in those days, unless they went to a concert and heard it being performed. Yes, absolutely. It's it's live music making. That's how you experience music. And, uh, you know, you, you need to be able to read music to join in. But, you know, then your listeners uh, received it and then that was it. it. It went away. So this is why the survival of the manuscripts is just so important. Otherwise, you know, vast swathes of early modern music would have been lost to us completely. And then it's groups like Solomon's Knot then recreate it for us wonderfully into the 21st century and that's what it's all about and that that's why this project is 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 so fascinating yes we'll get on to that but joe the subjects that george jeffries was, was interested in in terms of his music production presumably religious devotional that sort of content any of it romantic maybe or it's primarily the religious imagery of the church year, which were fundamental to all sacred composers of the time. Um, mm. But in that George Jeffrey's music is mostly non-liturgical, meaning that it's not written for church services. There's a few church service pieces, but mostly it is what I, I think is best described as domestic devotional music, music for the chamber, music for the private devotions of religious people. In that most of Jeffrey's output is for that, he actually therefore had a far wider range of texts available to him than, dare I say, the standard cathedral church anthem composer. 
Now, many of these texts are anonymous, might well indeed have been written by various of Christopher Hatton's uh, religious coterie. But we do have, for example, him setting rather colourful texts by George Herbert. The Rise Heart, the Easter anthem, is, is by George Herbert. We also have George Sandys, his psalm paraphrases, which are really quite colourful poetry and paraphrases of the psalms. Jeffries uses quite a lot of that. When we move to the Latin music, we, we find him setting a lot of St. Bernard, St. Augustine, other meditations by the church fathers. So he has a really free reign as regards the texts he, he had open to him. And generally, I would say he chooses the most colourful texts, ones which can bring about a musical reaction. Yeah, if I could just come in on that, yeah. Charles, sorry. I think there's a really interesting tension or friction in Jeffrey's music, which comes from the style of music that he was using as an inspiration for his own style. Because he studied those Italian madrigal composers, which Joe mentioned, and copied out their music and indeed wrote his own madrigals in Italian, which, which are all based on texts about love and in all its various aspects and, and often can get quite sort of heated in their, in their imagery. There's a vein through, even through his religious music, which connects back to that musical language, which is very, very passionate. I mean, I suppose you can, you can link it to perhaps the, the high church, the sort of higher emotional energy maybe of that atmosphere. So for me, as, a, as an interpreter, it's not buttoned up church music. It's got lots of musical clashes in it. It's got lots of very emotionally expressive lines, which give it a real emotional life that, just on the surface, goes beyond what we might think of as, as a church anthem nowadays from that period. And can we hear any of what you've been describing there in the track, He Beheld the City? Yes, if you if you listen to the way he sets the words and wept over it, the way he set, sets that descending line swooping down, you know, almost a an, an onomatopoeic setting of of this idea of weeping. Other composers do this throughout the Baroque, but for me, the way that there's something almost so expressive, it's almost expressionist in the way that those that those little emotional tags jump out of the of the music. It feels much more like a small group of individuals who all really have their, their hearts on their sleeves rather than a choir in choir stalls. So thank you, Jonathan, for that contribution. That really helps to illustrate the style which George Jeffries is writing and getting his musicians to perform. I'm curious, actually, did George sing or was he just someone who wrote and did he perform as well? He must have done. He would certainly be a, a, a keyboard player, um, but it, it very likely was a singer uh, as well. I think most musicians were to some degree. We don't know that for an absolute fact, but uh, yes, he, his writing shows he understands the voice. Exactly as Johnny said earlier, that it is such expressive writing that George Jeffries must have been a singer, must have known it from the inside out, as it were. So let's talk about his association with the Hatton family of Kirby Hall. He's this sort of in-house musician and a steward. Can you talk a bit more about those sort of two different roles, Joe? Yeah, as a household musician, basically you provided whatever music your patron asked of you. So you look at Jeffrey's output throughout his, his life. So when he was with Hatton in Cambridge, when Hatton was a student in the 1630s, and indeed I think that is the first connection between George Jeffries and the Hatton family, certainly the first one that we have recorded. And th there we have Jeffries writing plays for the university, play music for, for the university productions. That's because Christopher Hatton was closely connected with the poets in Cambridge at, at that time. Later on in his career, we find him writing 
music for the Oxford Court. I suspect that Jeffrey's early compositions were possibly for either the chambers of Charles I or equally as likely in that there is Latin Roman Catholic music copied by George Jeffreys. Music when Henrietta Maria had her Roman Catholic chapel in Merton College during the Civil War. So Jeffreys produced whatever was required of him at whatever time. Such was the lot of the servant musician. Then when he was at Kirby Hall, the all likelihood is that there was a group of of musicians made up of uh, family members of of Hatton's servants. We we have the names of a couple of them, but mostly we don't know who these musicians were. But there was obviously a very good group of musicians at Kirby Hall or in London at, at the Hatton's house in London in Ely Place. They must have been really good musicians because this is not easy music to perform. And it's you know quite demanding music. So Jeffries again was writing for that. The key thing to remember is I think we, we've got to put that romantic idea that a composer composed because his heart told them to. That's not to say that Jeffries' heart didn't tell him to, but he wouldn't have composed unless it was going to be performed. I think there's a functional side to it. Jeffries composed because his music was serving a purpose in the private family devotions or wherever. And it's the same with any sort of artistic work in any area, Absolutely. really, these days, isn't it? You're commissioned to do something for a purpose. Exactly. His job as a steward, I'm curious to know a bit about what that involved. Because obviously when he's a musician, he's sort of like this, he's music to order, isn't he, basically? But when he's a steward, what's he doing at Kirby Hall in Northamptonshire on a daily basis? Dickon? I think to understand his role as, as steward, you've got to know that great households at this time were, you know, almost sort of like mini companies, you know, of today that you, you'd need almost a CEO to run them because the money of the Hatton family, as with all nobility, sort of stemmed by their ownership of land. So they, they would own hundreds of acres of farmland and, and what have you. They also had Kirby Hall, which is you know, a grand country house with servants and staff. So you needed someone running that for the family. Of course, the Lord and Lady might get involved with that kind of business, but often they were busy either with politics or just with other things. And so they needed someone professional, someone well-educated, basically to make sure that their estates and their household, you know, how their house was actually running, was doing so efficiently. So the steward was the sort of the chief officer, the sort of highest ranking member of the household below the family itself, and often acted as a deputy to the Lord and the Lady when they weren't around. So like Chief of Staff, and, I guess I mean, you could say. Yeah, I suppose so. And I mean, we're quite lucky, actually, that we have various books and treatises from the period which sort of actually go into quite quite a lot of detail about how a household should be run. So there's, there's one by uh, Viscount Montague, which is called A Book of Orders and Rules, which was written in 1595 and sort of goes into some of the domestic things that a steward would do. I mean, first of all, he had to dress well and be presentable and be deferential to his employers, but he would be in charge of all the rest of the household staff, so from cooks to cleaners and to grooms and everything in between. So hiring, um, firing, making sure they were doing their jobs. Um, he would also be charged with making sure that there were provisions of you know, food, wine, spices for the table. He would distribute money and then uh, make sure that that money was accounted for. And then moving out from the house itself into the wider estate, he had to make sure that the parks, the fields, the farms, the livestock were all running effectively to, so that the Lord had a dependable income. And as Joe mentioned before, we've, we have you know, around 250 surviving letters from Jeffreys where he goes into a lot of detail, you know, very specific detail about the running of the estate. So we know we know that it took up a lot of time and it was a very important job. And but we shouldn't think of it as a as a menial job though. That, you know, stewards were, you know, high ranking, educated, they needed to read and, and write, and they became professionals. You know, these were people who could who knew exactly what was happening with the estate. They would know everybody, uh, they would know what they were doing. And so I suppose um, in a big household like the Hattons, it was a full-time job that was absolutely crucial. Well, absolutely. It sounds like he's <laughs> the buck stops with him when it comes to uh, his own income, really, because by day he's the steward, the sort of chief of staff for this vast estate. 
He's making sure that everything is counted and organised and the bills are paid and the food is produced, etc, etc. And at night, I guess, he's penning some of these musical works. Is, is that a fairly accurate description? Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, certainly his role of steward would take him a lot of time and he would have been in between Kirby Hall and London. But then, as Joe said, music was an intrinsic part of life in the 1600s. And so I imagine that actually the music was a very important part of what he was doing. It was certainly appreciated by the Hatton family. So I imagine that what he was doing as he was writing music, the Hattons would have been just as interested in that as they were in sort of the mundane, how many cows were in you know, whatever field and, and, and so on. So I don't think it's something that he had to do purely in his spare time. I think it was it was very important. I can imagine him sort of walking around the sites, just sort of working on tunes and perhaps humming to himself. The Hattons, of course, they are asking for music to be produced, but people will want to know Dickon. How did they get their fortune they have this land, they have titles, they have Kirby Hall. How did they amass all that? How far back into their history does that go? Well, the main progenitor of the family, as it were, the one who makes the family particularly rich and, and famous was Christopher Hatton I. We call him one and the others two and three. They had a, um, a habit of naming their children Christopher. So it's Christopher followed by Christopher followed by Christopher. So we have to call them one, two and three. So the first one I say was well, Christopher Hatton I was an Elizabethan courtier par excellence. He sort of rises and joins at Queen Elizabeth I's court. We're told actually that she first, or he first came into Elizabeth's attention when she visited the inns of court uh, where he was a student and performed in a mask, which is a, a, a dance accompanied to music. And Elizabeth noticed him dancing. And from that point, he gained Elizabeth favour. So he must have been a very good dancer. And from that, he rises up, is very close to Elizabeth. They write letters in which they give each other nicknames. And he's made a Knight of the Garter. He's a member of her Privy Council and rises all the way up to Lord Chancellor, which is one of the most prestigious, most high-powered positions in the land. And he builds Holdenby, an absolutely vast country house. And while that's being built, he also buys Kirby Hall. So this is where the connection with Kirby uh, comes in with the Hatton family. And he, he builds a whole set of state apartments in the hope that he would attract Elizabeth on one of her progresses around the country, which, although Elizabeth never actually visited Kirby, so he was unsuccessful, it did later play host to other very important people, which I think we'll go on to. But after Christopher Hatton's death, it passes Kirby Hall, passes to his nephew, and then a cousin who while important, you know, local MPs and what have you, don't quite get to the same level or the same heights as Christopher Hatton one. But by the time we get to Christopher Hatton three, who is the patron of George Jeffreys, Christopher Hatton at this stage is, he's interested in music. He's a noted antiquarian. He works with people like William Dugdale to create this, what's known as the Book of Seals, where it's, it's a collection of medieval charters and what have you, where he writes out the charters and, and draws the seals, which is a real um, noted work of antiquarian scholarship. He also has a promising career. He's an MP for Peterborough. But when the Civil War occurs, that's when he really joins the king's household in Oxford, as Joe says, and is made controller of the king's household. It's obviously a very senior position at Oxford in the king's court. And Charles, Charles I, they say, that is, makes him Baron Hatton of Kirby, so ennobles him. So although he, you know, after the Civil War, we've heard from Joe that he wasn't particularly, Christopher Hatton, that is, wasn't the best manager of money, he did have quite a lot of success in the 1630s and 40s before the Civil War. But it's this association with King Charles I who eventually loses his head and is found guilty of treason, that the association... George Jeffreys has with his patron then takes a downturn as well. Is that right? Yes. After Charles I loses the First Civil War and then the Second Civil War, Christopher Hatton III does what sensible people do and flees. He flees to the Low Countries where he seems to just spend time. He does spend a little bit of time around Charles II as he would become at the time, Charles Prince of Wales, but seems to really be living in, in very constrained circumstances. While this is happening, his wife, Elizabeth, is left back at Kirby 
with George Jeffries as well. So back at Kirby, it's it's those two, Elizabeth and George Jeffries, running the estates while Christopher Hatton III is is uh, living in exile. But I think thinking about George Jeffries, though, it's despite the various travails of the family throughout the Hattons, they are very well cultured, connected people who are interested in Munich, music, interested in new learning create a huge library of, of books. And I think it's this aspect, actually, that uh, is as important to Jeffrey's work as what was happening to his patron, Christopher Hatton III. Broadly speaking, did George Jeffrey's reputation suffer as a result of Christopher Hatton III's association with the decapitated king? Well, I certainly think for Christopher Hatton III, when he goes into exile... And as a known royalist supporter, this is a particular nadir of the Hatton's fortunes. And even after Charles II and the restoration of the monarchy after Commonwealth comes to an end, Christopher Hatton III never really becomes as successful as he was under Charles I. He becomes governor of Guernsey, which is is an important position, but at the same time, it's not at the centre of political life. It's a long way from Parliament and Westminster and the royal court. So because of his mismanagement of his own affairs, his own, he's seen as somewhat of a liability and, ne- and never recovers that position at court. And it's only later that the Hatton family, his son, Christopher Hatton, another Christopher Hatton, this time Christopher Hatton IV, sort of regains a lot of favour and is created a Viscount Hatton. So although Christopher Hatton III does have a bit of a downfall, um, his son manages to restore both favour and um, the estate at Kirby Hall. And I don't know whether this is a question for you, Dickon, or more for Joe, but is Christopher Hatton three, four, and George Jeffries linked? And does George Jeffries suffer at all? It's a sad fact that Jeffries' fortunes were, were so closely entwined with those of his patron that when at the Hatton the three fell from grace, Jeffries was affected. He didn't ever get that court post, which a musician of his importance and given what he did during the Civil War, could perhaps have expected, I think because Hatton was out of London circles and then in some disgrace, really, that Jeffries was passed over by the new generation of court musicians. Indeed, we've heard an extract from the Solomon Knotts recording of How Wretched is the State You All Are In, a setting of words from the humble petition of the wretched, probably composed around 1660. And I do wonder if this was a text chosen by Jeffries, deliberately reflecting his disappointment at being passed over the Restoration. And one further thing, it is just worth saying that although musically he perhaps was disappointed, to some degree, as an administrator and a, a, as a this rather important post of steward, it is worth noting that towards the end of his life, George Jeffries did acquire some land of his own in Weldon. So he was obviously successful enough financially to have a little bit of independence from the Hatton family later in life. So I suppose it, it rather depends how you judge success. Probably as a, a musician, he was disappointed, but actually in terms of society, he, he obviously was quite successful as an important member of the household or of the Hatton family. Yeah, I, I think that's one really interesting question in this because we don't know really very much about Jeffrey's personality or perhaps there's something to glean from his letters back and forth with Hatton, but we, we don't know if he was that kind of ambitious musician who who wanted to get known in London and, and really be in that cosmopolitan musical scene at the time of the Restoration, for example. For us, looking back and we see the quality of the music and we think, oh, why wasn't this better known? Why wasn't Jeffries a huge hit in, in London? But maybe he wasn't particularly interested in doing that. Maybe he was happy sitting in uh, Northamptonshire and writing for himself for his close circle. You'd think that How Wretched Is The State is a bit of a risky sort of approach to uh, being heard in public, isn't it? 
those words are, yeah. are quite I think, critical. I think that's the other thing. I mean, certainly when you take his, his English music at face value, you don't see any deviation from the royalist cause. And yeah, of course, for a long time, that was very politically incorrect. So there was a long period where, where he had to keep his head down and as did uh, all of the other royalists and so on. And who knows, you know, okay, there was the restoration, but one king had already lost his head. Who knew how long the next king would keep his force? So he may he may have been uh, cautious about stepping back out into the limelight. But of course, I'm speculating here. No, I think it's okay to speculate, but I don't know whether historians do. <laughs> what do you think, Dickon? I think it's very interesting to dwell on those points. I mean, we don't know if he was ambitious, but certainly he would have had a an opinion about the events and the politics of his day. And I think looking at his music as well as his surviving letters is, is probably the best way of uncovering those opinions. And of course, he was living and working at Kirby Hall. It's near Corby in Northamptonshire in England's East Midlands. It's a partial ruin today. How much of what remains today would George Jeffries have recognised Dickon? I think he, he, he would know the site immediately. I mean, he'd probably be quite sad because um, it is semi-ruinous. But essentially, the Kirby Hall that is there today is exactly the same Kirby Hall that he knew. Kirby Hall is famous for its Elizabethan and Jacobean architecture, which are some of the finest in the entire country. In 1638, Christopher Hatton III paid the well-known architect Nicholas Stone to update the building. But because the Hatton family in later centuries used Kirby Hall less and less, there were no significant updates. So the exterior of the hall with its wonderful pilasters and classical details would have been instantly recognisable to Jeffrey's art today. Um, And while a lot of the interiors that he would have known, such, such as the long gallery, the chapel, and some of the domestic wings have lost their roof and therefore are lost, the surviving state apartments, starting with the Great Hall and leading on to the Great Chamber, the Withdrawing Chamber, the parlours, these places which were the finest parts of the house, Jeffreys would have known and I think would be pleased to know that they're still there. I mean, I think at the same time, of course, Jeffreys was living, you know, 400 years ago, there has been huge changes. And I think probably one of the major ones would have been just the sort of the exterior, the grounds, in particular, the garden, which while Jeffreys was alive, was one of the finest gardens in England. We know that the Hattons were hugely interested in gardening and botany, collected plants from around the world. And of course, a lot of this now has been lost and these amazing gardens have been replaced with farmland, which give the house today a very picturesque, romantic quality, but would have been quite different to the amazing formal gardens that Jeffreys would have known. Obviously, the main thing is this semi-ruinous state. How did it end up like that? In the lifetime of George Jeffreys, the house was very much used by the family. But afterwards, the Hattons intermarried and with another family and became the Finch Hattons. Uh, and they were earls of Winchelsea and had other houses, probably most importantly, Eastwell Park in Kent where they spent a lot more time. So the last family members that lived in the house were in the early 1800s, but they used it less and less. And there were sales in 1772 and 1824 of a lot of the furniture. So a lot of, a lot of the interior decorations were lost at that point, at which point it becomes really just a, a shell that was cared for less and less. And so that's when the story of uh, Kirby Hall as a romantic ruin really begins. By the late 1800s, the grandeur of Kirby Hall had had gone and been replaced by this ruin, which you know it's still is very evocative, but not quite as Jeffreys would have known it. There were some high-profile visitors on the monarchical side, weren't there? Christopher Hatton one tried to get Queen Elizabeth I, but I believe James I came to visit. Did he not? He did on four occasions, actually, um, in 1612, 1616, 1619 and 1624. And his queen, Anne of Denmark, also visited in 1605. So this is comparatively somewhere that the royal family go a lot. And we know, you know other very important members of the court visited. For example, there is in the Hatton correspondence that we've mentioned, Elizabeth Hatton, Christopher Hatton III's wife, writes about how when 
very important members of the court would come. Um, Christopher would go out into the courtyard of Kirby Hall and greet people at the gates. So yes, it's, it's, it's very important for those royal connections. And James and other courtiers are coming to Kirby partially because it's a convenient stopping point on the way between London and the north, but also because Rockingham Forest is nearby, which is a prime hunting ground, and it's and therefore somewhere where the nobility go for in order to sort of you know kick back and 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 engage in the pastimes they want to. One of the fantastic things of survivals is a an inventory from 1619 which lists the contents of the house. And from that, we know that it was absolutely, it was really sumptuously decorated. There were rich furnitures in exotic woods, included in a throne for when um, James I visited. There were tapestries, even a gilded bed. So somewhere where James I and his courtiers could be entertained um, in the sort of style that they would expect that 1619 inventory also lists in one of the rooms a lot of musical instruments such as viols, which goes back to Jeffreys and saying that you know Kirby Hall was somewhere where music was a regular occurrence, just as today we you know we like to listen to music exactly the same in the 1600s. And so Jeffreys, as the steward at Kirby, would have had access to these instruments and uh, and also as Joe was saying, the means and the library in order to copy the music. So a really fantastic place for an amateur composer to write the music. And that list of objects that um, you've given is a great segue to one of our other tracks that we can play, Look Up All Eyes. Johnny, you've obviously performed Look Up All Eyes at Kirby Hall on site. What's the song all about? Yeah, that's right. Well, as Dickon was just describing, when those visitors do look up with their eyes and we follow the text of this piece, the earth is now a scorned thing. Gone is the jewel of the ring. We can see the parallels between the building at Kirby and, and the music because this is a piece, if I remember correctly, for Ascension Day, which on the face of it is a very joyous occasion. Jesus has ascended to heaven. But it's the poem is written very much from, from the point of view of, of those left behind. And yes, it's of course wonderful that the prophecy has been fulfilled. You know, this glorious ascension has taken place, but we are all the poorer for that. We're the ones left behind with nothing as it were. And and here we feel as strongly as in any of his pieces, or if you're willing to read into them, there are obvious parallels with the lost king of the royalists. And this comes time and again through Jeffrey's music. Even the angels can't say why or can't speak anymore because they are, they're simply stunned. And so sad, the final line is full to the brim with grief of losing him who they have gained. It's not the traditional Ascension Day vibe, and I can't help but read it very much from a forlorn royalist perspective. Interesting. So of course, one of the main reasons for our recording this episode is the release of the new music and these new performances of George Jeffrey's work at Kirby Hall. How was Jeffrey's music originally performed at Kirby Hall, Joe? And also whereabouts on site? It could have been performed in a, a variety of places. I, I don't think music making was confined to one particular space. So, you know, there was a room assigned as a chapel at Kirby Hall, so that would have been used for liturgical services. But actually, sacred music could take place in the family chambers, uh, private music making, the family devotions in the, the family chambers. Then, of course, there's the Great Hall, which could be used for more public music, for perhaps secular music making. So I think of the variety of places would have been used. We're not talking about vast numbers of musicians, of course, here. We're talking about really a handful of singers and players. So you, you don't need whopping great big spaces. And, it, and I think we need to get out, out of our mind large choirs and this sort of performance. It, it isn't. It's relatively small-scale domestic music making. 
One interesting development in recent years has been the discovery of a soundboard of a domestic 17th century organ at uh, Kirby. And this, of course, coincides with the fact that uh, there are two undated letters from Hatton Four to his wife, Cecilia, which actually mentioned the shipment of organ pipes at Kirby Hall. So it seems that there was a small domestic organ, one which could have been carried by a few servants from various different buildings. But that just gives us a bit of a hint of the instruments, just as the listings of, of uh, instruments from Hatton II's time that Dickon mentioned uh, earlier. So, you know, I, I think uh, that music would have been made in a variety of places in, under different circumstances. It's just interesting that the 1619 inventory that I mentioned before, the room with the musical instruments actually is between the great chamber. This is where James I and the monarchs were intended to sort of meet all and sundry and the most private space is the bedroom. So actually in between those two spaces is where the instruments are kept. So this, I think that suggests that the music was intended to be both for more public engagement and enjoyment, but also in the most intimate of settings in actually the rooms where James I and also perhaps for the Hattons were the most intimate and private spaces. So music didn't necessarily need to be a public thing. It could also be intensely private. That's very intriguing, isn't it? The idea of music binding those two different things, the family and the state, effectively. It makes you almost think, would the king have arrived to music playing, to George Jeffreys conducting a group of, you know, a handful of singers and and players, perhaps? What do you think, Joe? Uh, possible, yeah. I I think the idea of conductors is probably a bit anachronistic, but jeffrey uh, has been involved as part of a, a musical consort welcoming a nobleman uh, entirely possible entirely possible yes okay not not the king himself since jeffreys would have been rather no. young at that time that's right i, th- I think uh, the royal visitations uh, are, are before jeffreys unless he was a child looking in on it we've talked obviously about um, george jeffreys works being performed at kirby hall both in the past and now in the present but um were his pieces also performed by other musicians in other venues up and down the country his early works, as I've already said, would have been performed in Cambridge. It's possible, just possible, that his earliest sacred works might have, have had something to do with Peterhouse, Cambridge in the late 1630s. It's possible, too, that his works were performed in the, the private chambers of King Charles I and Henrietta Maria during the Civil War period in, in Oxford. Regarding his later works, it's it's interesting that there aren't that many copies of his works by other musicians, other music copyists. His music wasn't widely disseminated. Only one piece by him was actually printed during his lifetime, and that's actually one of his not-so-good motets, uh, sadly. So that rather supports the idea I was promoting earlier, that Jeffrey's suffered later in life, didn't get his major court appointments and existed in some sort of isolation, creating quite wonderful music, but actually in isolation at, at Kirby Hall. So my guess is that his, his later music wasn't widely known beyond the Hatton circles. Joe, you mentioned motets there. Uh, for people who aren't too familiar, what's that mean? Yes, I should explain that. We use motet uh, in, in England these days to talk about Latin music. Basically, it is the same as the English anthem. It's just that it's in that the text is is in Latin. And Jeffreys interestingly writes uh, as many Latin motets as he does English uh, sacred songs and, and anthems. Again, it shows that this was an educated group of people, and and they would be very happy listening to Latin motets alongside English pieces in a liturgical context or a devotional context, at least anyway. His particular style is something called Baroque, isn't it? Do we have any clue about how he came to craft his pieces, apart from obviously getting inspirations we've discussed from being a copyist? Well, I wish we knew more about the compositional processes of early modern composers. With Jeffreys, we do get some hints from the manuscripts, but so much, of course, is lost to us. We know, for example, that George Jeffreys couldn't leave his music alone. He was constantly revising it, particularly at cadences, the, the, the end sections. He couldn't leave those uh, alone. And I must say that gave me something of an editorial conundrum when I was doing my editions. 
because I'm not always convinced that Jeffrey's revisions made it better. How dare I say that 400 years later and not being the composer? But it got to the point where in my Music of Botanica volumes, I often would give two versions of the same piece and complete coward I am, uh, leave the performers to make the decisions of which version they actually prefer. Uh, I have prefer. to say, Joe, as a performer, I very much appreciate that, <laughs> I have to say. Good. <laughs> yeah, I, I do. I, th- I think it, 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 it leaves the musicians to make, make that decision. And of course, this is the delight of music making, is that some will prefer the original version, some will prefer the later version. I mean, with these different endings, it's just a real privilege to be able to choose and especially as Joe suggests that Jeffries wasn't really sure one way or the other. So, you know, why shouldn't we be able, be able to decide? But there's another aspect of musical style that's for us as performers, specifically in this music, which does change every time or which should change every time. And that's something called ornamentation, where essentially the singer is free to decorate their musical line as they see fit. Just sort of little twiddles or, or little additions of small notes extra to what's written on the page and that's something which joe suggests that performers do in his edition of this music and i think for those of us who are used to listening to english music of this period or of a slightly late slightly later period that kind of ornamentation that kind of embellishment specifically in an italian way is actually something quite fresh and new so that that gives this particular music with its very strong italian flavor this gives this particular English music quite a different and fresh character that would hopefully be different every time as well. Fresh like the whispering of the wind, perhaps, in a track that we've got to play now called Whisper It Easily. Tell us what Whisper It Easily is about. Is there any subtext to it? Or Whisper It Easily, an interesting title for, for, for a song or an interesting opening line. Nowadays, we would say singing me softly or something like that. Killing me softly, maybe. Yeah. Uh, this is a uh, one of his church year English pieces, one of his really one of his best pieces. And it's about the passion. So it's really written for Good Easter. Friday, let's say. Mm. Yeah, or rather beforehand on the actual death of christ and <laughs> similarly to the, the piece we were talking about earlier look up all eyes which on the face of it should have been a positive piece this piece on that very very solemn occasion is deadly serious and and again focuses on very much and almost obsesses around this this phrase dead is the king of glory there's even there's a wonderful piece of rhetoric in it where the bass singer sings and the male voices sing the word dead and the ladies say, not so loud. And then they sing it again, presumably more quietly. There's something amazingly dramatic about that, about the way that the text and, of course, that this music is written. Uh, you really feel, you really feel all, all of the emotions, especially building up to the end, the emotion that they felt about their lost king, whichever king you, you want it to be. And it ends with wonderfully musical words, words as well. The song was left imperfect, so somehow that this... The lost Christ is, is leaving the music unfinished, let's say, the, the music of his life. And Jeffries even cuts off the vocal line in, in the middle and just leaves the instruments playing. He's just an amazing sense of drama throughout all of these works. And the last line, "'Tis his will that our confessions should the music fill." So it's, it's us, it's we singers literally filling this musical hole which our king has left behind. It's so rich, it's wonderful. Of course, as artistic director of Solomon's Knot, the group that's been performing these works by George Jeffries now in the present at Kirby Hall and placing these recordings into an album. Johnny, you obviously know a lot about that whole process. And um, what was the experience like recording at Kirby Hall? And also, how many artists did you have involved? Was it this this handful, as Joe said earlier, of, of singers? 
Sure. Well, look, I can't overemphasize what an amazing opportunity this whole project has been. From start to finish, really, I have to give credit to William Whitehead, our organist who plays on the recording, who first came to me. You know, he knew the music of Jeffries. He'd come across a few pieces. Some pieces are still performed today in churches. In fact, one of our tenors was humming a line from a Jeffries anthem in, in his professional church choir vestry the other week. And one of the other tenors said, oh, isn't that a line from Jeffries so-and-so? And he said, how on earth did you know that? Nobody, <laughs> I mean, I had never come across this name before. And it's worth saying, as we've implied, this period with all of those political upheavals is a, I don't want to say black hole, but it is a bit of a, let's say, fallow period in English music history. Between the two big names, which music lovers will know of, let's say, Bird and Henry Purcell, there aren't so many composers which even we musicians can name, never mind anyone else. So to discover this music of this quality from that period in itself is fantastic. And our group, Solomon's Knot, is a group which focuses on the music of the 17th and 18th centuries. So this is our period. And there do tend to be more lesser known composers in that period. It's that bit longer ago. And there's always wonderful research being done, like Joe's work. But often when you discover a new name and you look at the music, you think, yeah, okay, it's, it's all right, but one can understand why no one's ever heard of this guy. Whereas with the best of Jeffrey's music, it does stand alongside the best composers, certainly from the, from the 17th century. And it has this really interesting angle, this, the fact of this Italian model, this different style, which takes you aback if you're used to, as I am, if you're used to, for example, the music of Henry Purcell, you're hearing these English words and you're sort of familiar with the style. And then some, as I was talking about, these musical clashes, they just jump out at you and you think, what was that? And then you start looking deeper into it. And it's, it's really, really fascinating from a musical point of view. And then to have the opportunity to plug this music back into its, into its home, as it were, and, and huge thanks to English Heritage and especially to Dickon, I have to say, who really helped from an early stage with this whole project uh, in making it happen and accompanied us through it. And there's a little film about the recording projects as well, which, which Dickon speaks on. Mm. The experience of recording at Kirby, could you just describe how many people were on hand to record this album on the site? Yeah, absolutely. So we were a, a small group, as Joe said, only ever one person singing each musical line. So we were a total of six singers, but only five of them ever, ever singing at once. And we were always being accompanied by a small organ and a theorbo, which is a, a plucked instrument like a lute. So trying to get as close to we can as to what we think Jeffrey's forces might have been. He does write in the music, sometimes he writes solo and omnes to indicate when the solo sections are and the what we would call the tutti sections now when everyone's singing. But personally, because of the way the music's written, I interpret that more to mean that just to tell everyone that everyone's singing at once rather than to imply a larger group of singers. Although you could, of course, try this music with more people. But yes. to be at Kirby, I mean, this is the sort of mind-blowing aspect of this particular project and this album is the fact that we were in situ and in this most evocative place. So Dickens talked about the relatively wretched state that it's in. There are so many parallels and reflections of Jeffrey's music in the building itself in the actual fabric of it, not only the fact that it's been neglected and and now restored as English Heritage, you know, looks to maintain the building itself, this music has come back to light, but also the fact that the music itself often speaks of that loss and neglect. I mean, we've called the disc Lost Majesty, which, you know, works on all sorts of different levels of that sort of deterioration, but it's just so evocative being surrounded by those those very walls and those roofless buildings. As a very keen gardener, I, I am sad about the decline of these amazing sounding gardens. I think English, English heritage should, should get those back for sure. <laughs> and speaking of sounds, were there any challenges in recording in the places that you did record? Did you just record in, in one room, for example, and, and did the reflections cause any issues with the recordings? Did you have to perhaps dampen the environment we didn't, but that is, that is a very interesting question. So we decided to record in the Great Hall, which is one of the actually relatively few spaces of the right size that still has a roof on it. It's a nice tall space, and it's 
also, I mean, it's magical to think that it's a potentially a space where 400 years ago, Jeffries would have performed that music himself with his colleagues. We had bats flying around our heads who were, their songs were too high for the microphones to pick up, which was a blessing. We had a lot of meetings about peacocks. I was envisaging some kind of Danny the Champion of the World-esque sort of sedation maneuver that we were going to have to do because peacocks, when they are having fun, can make an awful lot of noise. And we had to record in the afternoons and late into the night after the building was closed to the public. But luckily, thankfully, the peacocks were listening very attentively and they didn't disturb us at all in the end. The Great Hall, of course, is not in the state that it was when let's say perhaps domestic music making would have been made there or public music making. There's no more wood panelling. There are no tapestries. So it is a much more, we would say, live acoustic space than it would have been at that time, which presented some challenges. We had a certain amount of distance between us. We didn't add any sort of dampening devices, but it's actually not the end of the world anyway. You'll notice from listening to the tracks that perhaps the sound, the acoustic is a little bit more ecclesiastical than it would be in a essentially a dead acoustic space of a 17th century dining hall. But that suits the aesthetic of this music anyway, because it could easily have been performed in a chapel or in a church context. But yes. for us, just being surrounded by the spirits was much more of a, of a boon than, than any kind of acoustic drawback. How can people hear your recordings then in this album? Well, we hope that one day they'll be able to hear bits of them at Kirby Hall, actually. Oh, live? Um, <laughs> in a concert? Uh, not well. <laughs> we might have some kind of event in, in the area to celebrate the launch of this disc, but we were thinking of something semi-permanent. Dickon probably has more detail on that, but we're very much hoping that when people visit the hall, at least on the audio guide, that people will really be able to wander around and hear the music of Jeffries in their ears as they walk those floorboards. But perhaps less romantically than that, it will be available as a digital release, just like a normal record. It's actually being released on the 8th of December, 2023, digitally and online and on all your normal platforms. And then there'll be a physical disc in early February, 2024. You can actually already order the physical disc from the website of Solomon's Knot. And it's a beautiful thing. It's a double disc. There's plenty of music on there. All of his English, almost all of his English music for four and five voices. And it's got lots of pictures from the recording sessions. It's got a very informative essay from Joe, which might have even more detail in it that, that you haven't heard today. And all the texts of all the pieces. It's a really lovely thing to have. Even if you don't own a CD player, it's actually got a QR code in it so that you can scan that and listen to the music digitally anyway so it's really nice to have the physical object okay i should say one more thing we we are also planning to perform jeffrey's music in concert in the latter part of 2024 and even beyond that and i i think this won't be the last time that we visit jeffrey's music because as i continue to talk to joe about all of the other wonderful additions that he's bringing out there's definitely more to be discovered here there's more of jeffrey's music that people have to hear We just heard another piece there from Lost Majesty by the group Solomon's Knot. Whisper it easily, brackets, dead is the king of glory. So listening to what you've been saying about the changing fortunes of Kirby Hall and George Jeffries, do the house and Jeffries' music now take on this new quality? It's music that's been rediscovered and reborn and given new life. It's almost got this uh, religious connotation now, or well, an extra religious connotation. What do you think to that, Johnny? Yeah, look, I think that Kirby Hall is like a physical representation of Jeffrey's music almost, and hopefully now you know will become a living and vibrating thing with this sound which we've had the honour to create in it. Christopher Hatton did the same thing to his English architecture, which Jeffrey's did to his English music. He imported Italian decorations. He was absolutely inspired by that foreign influence. And 
there's another sort of one-to-one mirroring of the fact that of this fusion of the continental and the English that you can hear. And to be able to add a fourth dimension to that three-dimensional world, I think it's just something really unique and special. So the music and the place are enjoying brand new and renewed associations. Would you agree with that, uh, Dick and, and Joe? I would agree absolutely. I mean, one of the natures of sound, of course, is it, it is temporary. Um, once it comes out, it you know, in terms of history, it's it's lost. We don't have the voices of the past. But recreating this music or uh, reproducing this music at Kirby Hall, um, I was lucky enough to be at the recording. You are in a very real sense, listening to the past. You know, this is music that was performed, was performed in that space. And so to hear it again was an absolutely magical, magical experience. And I think the album and our hope to have the music on site in the future is going to give that experience to our visitors as well. And Joe, lastly, you began answering our questions about George Jeffries, the Hattons and, and all the rest of the story. What are your final thoughts on these new associations between Kirby Hall and George Jeffries and Solomon's Knot, the album Lost Majesty? It must be a, a great new development for your study of music, I suppose. Absolutely. Having lived with George Jeffries and the Hattons for 30 years of my academic career, having performed quite a bit of Jeffries in various contexts, including as, as uh, cathedral anthems when, in the days when I was a cathedral musician, one wouldn't say you, you you thought you knew everything about Jeffries. I would never be so arrogant, but I knew an awful lot. And I, I like Dickon, was at, in on the recording sessions. I was at Kirby Hall when Johnny and Solomon's Knot were recording the, the music. And it was the most wonderful experience. Hearing the music done properly with uh, One to a Part, with such wonderful singers, such expressive singing, brought the music off the page in, in a way which... I will admit I was surprised just how wonderful it is. And then, of course, to experience it at Kirby Hall in the place where the Hattons would have listened to this 400 and odd years ago was an absolute privilege. And I can't wait for the disc to appear. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we're exploring some of the key dates in a post-Christmas calendar of the past. You have to be genuinely sorry of your sins for the absolution to work, and you also have to serve a penance, and boy, is the next six weeks going to be penitential. Thanks for listening. See you next time.